Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Bova, and I have the wonderful pleasure of welcoming Atif Rafiq to the show today. He has worked in Silicon Valley and the Fortune 500 for over the past 25 years. After rising through digital native companies like Amazon, Yahoo, and AOL, by the way, I went to high school with Steve Case. No way. <laughs> Atif held C-suite roles at McDonald's, Volvo, and MGM Resorts. He oversaw thousands of employees as a global P&L owner, transformation, and innovation leader. Atif was the first chief digital officer at McDonald's, which I think is so cool and I want to talk about. But he has an amazing new book out called Decision Sprint. So thank you for joining us today, Atif. Yeah, you're welcome, Tiffany. It's a pleasure to join you. And if you went to high school with Steve Case, then you probably know how to surf. I do. I do. <laughs> I, I don't surf really anymore, but he's a little older than me, but we now have Case Middle School on our campus. So he and his brother basically built the fifth and sixth grade to be, I think it was the most, I think it was the smartest middle school in the country there for a moment. Now it's a little long in the tooth. I think it's 20 or 25 years old, but anyway, I digress. So let's get started on what I always do called bullish and bearish. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. Bullish or bearish? Bringing back the woolly mammoth. Bearish. Oh, really? I think it's kind of cool. I'm worried, but I think it's cool. I My reason is because it seems unnatural, so there might be unintended consequences. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. All right. Next up, bullish or bearish? Surgery by a robot. It depends on what type. You know, lightweight stuff like a little ankle sprain, you know, drain some fluid or something. Sure. No problem. Heart surgeon. No way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Last one. Bullish and bearish. A hundred percent automated fast food restaurant. Well, I think those concepts have been tried before. You know, it's everybody has seen probably a few YouTubes of those in Japan and maybe one, one kind of flagship in, in SF downtown SF when there used to be a downtown SF <laughs> that was vibrant, but I'm, I'm bearish because I think you just kind of want the human factor at some level, either giving you the tray or handing you the bag or just seeing them behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I'm kind of, I don't know. I, I, I like people. You know, I feel like someone would have to be there in case the robots decided they wanted to all take a break at the same time, you know, than, than what happens. But I, I, I think that a lot of the digital push is, is also helpful to people doing that repetitive, just mundane work that we could possibly push to robots. All right. Well, thanks for playing along. I, I appreciate it. So let's dive in. You know, look, you've been in and around this space for a while, and there has to be a reason that it was the right time for you to create a decision sprint. And I'd guess there's a story behind it and I'd love to hear it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the backstory is really, I wrote a cultural fault line between, you know, when I transitioned from Amazon to McDonald's. And as you mentioned, growing up in Silicon Valley companies, you kind of don't think about it, but you have a lot of freedom to experiment, to try things and really start with imagine if, and uh, what does good look like? And then if that sounds interesting, you, you can get a lot of support to just go try it and figure it out. You know, that's the whole system there. And then when I entered the traditional Fortune 500, I encountered an entirely different culture, you know, for normal reasons, meaning a company like McDonald's has been successful for 60 years. There are reasons for that. So innovation can be viewed as a defect, right? Because you could mess up something that's already working. And if you just take what's working and make it 5% better every year, you're like king or queen, right? 
you're in the CEO Hall of Fame, you know, <laughs> and you get your your portrait up on the corporate headquarters. But at some point, that formula runs out. For McDonald's, they had flatlined, and so they did need to do something quite different. And digital was one of their big bets, and I was the person to to kind of lead the charge there. You know, getting a company which wants to do more of the same to try entirely new things. You know, I had to figure out like, how am I actually going to get this done? So high level, what I learned in that process of transitioning was that the what and the how are both required and the what, what we have to do in terms of the vision of, let's say for the customer experience, that might be very quick. I mean, I, I effectively put that in front of the board of McDonald's within 45 days of my arrival, how we actually work and collaborate you know, how we problem solve from the direction to the concrete details, you know, that took a couple of years to work through. So my, the main thing I learned was that the how, the model for collaboration, for example, is really just as important as the what. And then I spent 10 years doing that at McDonald's and other organizations. And I got to a point where I felt like, actually, there is a method to the madness. So let me put pen to paper. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, I, I feel like what I notice of late, and I don't know if it, it it's just kind of this post-pandemic world or the what's going on in the economy, right, when it's tough times, but I feel there's this lack of decision-making. Like it's this fear of, I'm going to make the wrong decision, or am I making it at the right time? Or because I don't feel it's perfect, right, perfectionism, like it has to be completely right, then I just do nothing. And so- Decision sprint, is that more of how do I make faster decisions fail faster? Is it I make faster decisions about, okay, why are we do we need to do this? And then the kind of the, the what and the how follows that. I mean, what do you see in just decision making at, you know, its top level, right? At the top of that waterfall in making decisions? Yeah, great question. I mean, at the highest level, you have what I referred to as upstream and downstream. Downstream, I think people understand. Where, whereby a decision is made and now we're on to execution. And, you know, many of us are good at creating plans, right? Like if we have a decision, we know we can break that down in all of the steps and tasks it takes to go ship and deliver and scale and measure, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The upstream part is where we have a bright idea. And often teams spend, you know, weeks or months trying to sort through the unknowns, the key questions, get to the bottom of those questions then get to a point where they're comfortable forming a recommendation, let's say, or a set of recommendations, and then driving, you know, these, these words we use in companies like alignment and decision-making. That process, number one, can be very cumbersome. It can be opaque on how do we actually get there. It can be full of risk in terms of, you know, do you feel like you're being a cavalier about, you know, the use of money and resources in a company? Like, it's, it's, it's hairy stuff. And so high level, what I saw is a gap around upstream. What is it all about? What are the steps? How do we break it down into a workflow? Because we want to avoid pitfalls. So one pitfall is what I call alignment before exploration. And that's where there's a rush to judgment. So for example, there's a bright idea at Volvo, for example, someone was in the room one day and said, hey, how about we replace the interior of the cars with vegan leather? as opposed to cow-based leather. I mean, we have this big message around sustainability. You know, cows are, are less friendly for the environment. 
than, you know, maybe vegan materials. Well, the very next thing that happens in most companies is a lot of debate and opposing opinions. And so people try and kind of rush to judgment. But if we say, okay, let's create space for something called exploration, which I can elaborate on in a little bit, then we stand on higher ground to actually make a judgment. But very few companies have a process or a method to build and run an exploration so that can align quicker and more confidently on, hey, is this, is this a good idea? Is the juice worth a squeeze or not, right? And so that this is the big challenge in companies is confusion on what is this upstream work and how do we do it smarter and more streamlined? How can you capture ideas that maybe are not from that leadership team. You know, I was talking to someone the other day and it was sort of that top-down mandate kind of waterfall of, we make a decision, now we're telling everybody what they need to do, go execute. But it's sort of not just from the bottom up, but really specifically from the front line up. You know, those front line employees that are dealing with customers. So I'm going to pick on McDonald's for a second. I know for a very long time, customers were like, we want all day breakfast. It was actually a case study in my first book, Growth IQ. And they kind of ignored it. <laughs> it's like, why? We're just going to keep adding to the menu, you know, add to the menu kind of a thing, right? But the customers were like, wait, hey, listen, we want all day breakfast. And maybe people who were behind the counter, people go, hey, I'll have an Egg McMuffin. Oh, sorry, it stopped at 10 o'clock or whatever the case might be. And then, you know, employees were saying, hey, leadership, right? Like, I keep getting asked at least 10 times a day for an Egg McMuffin all the time, right? And it never makes it to the executive team or... They don't let the frontline bottom-up ideas make its way into this decision machine of yes, no, right? Like, or this exploration exercise. Why, why do you think that is, that top-down, bottom-up is understood, but frontline up doesn't always get as well-received as maybe it coming from, you know, the leadership ranks? I think the frontline has two important roles. One is to contribute to the idea pipeline, which is what you're talking about, Tiffany. I think it's a brilliant point. If you're structured well enough and you have like the center of a company, but then you have the field, you know, you have, you know, and you're really customer centric, which I know is your passion, then you are using all of these channels to, you know, populate that idea pipeline, right? Because you're looking at, you know, customer service logs, you're looking at, you know, ideas from product managers in the company, but you're, you're talking to people in the field and you're looking for patterns. And so if you have a good process around your idea backlog, you know, you, you're tapping all the sources, you're finding those patterns and then they're populating, you know, the backlog. Now, I think the big challenge in companies is maybe they have, you know, a rich backlog of ideas. They're, they're not lacking ideas, but what they're lacking is the confidence to know which ones to actually get behind. And so what I'm suggesting with exploration is that people invest time to basically, you know, take those ideas through a process where they're vetted and exploration is a way to basically quickly do that. So essentially to develop a, a list of the relevant questions that help you vet an idea and quickly get to the bottom of them so that people can quickly see, you know, Hey, this thing is, you know, we're taking to the next step or, or not. And I think, my second point here around the field is that often the center or the corporate doesn't tap the field and their knowledge, even wherever the idea comes from, if that makes sense. So getting input from the field is, is something that is, is not done well, you know, and that's really a shame. And where you need to do that is all the way in the beginning 
when you're asking questions like what makes this hard, what could go wrong or, you know, things around what the customers want. And you really want to get that input from more than just, you know, three voices around the table in the beginning. Otherwise you could very well have blind spots and that's something you, you want to avoid. So I think getting the right input from the right sources in the beginning when you're vetting an idea is critical in the field as part of that. Yeah, I read something the other day about how underrated or undervalued decision trees are. <laughs> like just that yes, no, yes, no, like if this, then yes, no, and you sort of work your way done. And if it makes it out the bottom of that decision tree, it's, you know, it's an exploration task we're going to go for, right? You very quickly could go through, but you have to have, a, to your point, you have to have alignment on what's on that decision tree, what makes a yes and what makes a no. Do you think that that's a lot of the impetus of failure of like things like transformation, especially like digital transformations? Do you think that a lot of this is in the lack of rigor behind that decision-making? The building block to me is actually questions. And I love questions because one, they're very inclusive. Everybody has questions. You know, uh, people have been in a company for 30 years and uh, might be very skeptical and we can uh, bring in that input in a very neutral way through questions. You know, people who are innovators, they have different questions. So when you start with questions, uh, you tend to get, you know, a surround sound of input, number one, you get it in a neutral way. And then if you can make questions actionable in terms of what having the questions be the guide for what we need to learn and then focus on creating space for that learning process and, and to feed the process of coming up with recommendations, even that flow, I think is, is just so powerful. And what it does is it makes decisions, what I would call drama free, because, you know, decisions, uh, even though my book is called Decision Sprint, my counterintuitive point is that the tables are set way in advance of the decision point. And really, let's go all the way upstream to the point where we have you know, really just starting with the unknowns, which I look at in the form of questions, make those questions actionable. And then a lot of things begin to to fall into place. And that is sort of my, my wish for individual, you know, project team leads and team members is that, you know, your alignment means your decision means are drama free because you've set the tables upstream. Yeah. And I think this lends itself really well to, a, you know, a topic that you you cover on design thinking, right? This way of thinking with a design lens was really super helpful for me. I mean, I can just speak to myself when I was doing projects and I really leaned into design thinking. It actually forced me to ask very different questions. And then I came up with very different answers and it forced me to stay curious through a project versus having that very fixed mindset of, I know exactly how to do this and I exactly, you know, what we can learn from it versus having that kind of approach but I think you, you've taken a stance that it's no longer driving a competitive advantage as it used to. I'd love to hear why, why you think that is. Yeah, it's a little bit controversial because, you know, I would also consider myself a face of design thinking. But every idea, you know, has their time and place. And so if we're sitting here in 2005, you know, design thinking is like huge. Like every CEO and, you know, leader in a company should be embracing it because let's say 15 or 20 years ago, Companies were not as customer obsessed. If I take McDonald's or Volvo or MGM Resorts, all companies I've worked for, I would say that they were really building things inside out, like around their operations. And then the customers had to flow through things that 
made things easy for the internal operations of the company. Then design thinking came along and said, oh my God, that is completely wrong. Let's do a 180. Let's clean sheet it. Let's think backwards from the customer. What is the ideal you know, flow from the customer's perspective? And it liberated everybody to think about questions like, what does good look like? Then you could work hard to, you know, kind of stand that up in terms of, you know, making a customer experience by way of example, work from the customer. And it was such a sea change where you began to notice that, well, some companies are just cumbersome to interact with and other companies, they just make it easy for the customer. And that gave like 15 or 20 years of legs to competing and winning and growing and customer satisfaction, all this stuff that you and I have a passion around. So it was, it was pretty awesome, but you know, I think design thinking has reached its limits and I think we're ready for the next thing. And the reason I say that is for really three reasons. One is I think it's less inclusive than it could be. So for example, if you're in supply chain or finance, it's really hard to get on the design train bandwagon because it's hard to just start building and prototyping, right? A lot of that mantra works for product managers, UX people, you know, people who are actually working with like screens, for example, or real artifacts. So I think it's a little bit less inclusive than things like questions, which are, you know, things that everybody have. It's more natural language based. Also in in, in an era of austerity, the idea of fail fast, fail forward, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this from even tech giants where there's just such a tendency in even the the big tech giants to just start building. And then a month in the teams are like, Hey, I built something. I learned something. Can I, can I get the big support I'm looking for? And the answer is, wait, have you really clarified what problem you're trying to solve? What are the big things you should try and prove first, as opposed to just building and learning a thing? So it's less purposeful, I think, than the idea of failing fast, failing forward. Of course, that experimentation is essential, but we need to figure out a little bit more what we're trying to solve for and what we need to learn first. And I I think that those things about prioritizing what you're trying to learn first, a more inclusive approach to innovation, those I think will define the, the next wave. Well, in lots of what you just said, underlying is people's willingness to learn new skills, grab new knowledge, like the changing of what it means to be a knowledge worker, right? Because you're, you're asking for people to do a lot of things that maybe they were never taught in school, or they have managers who don't coach on those skills. So they're a muscle that doesn't get worked out. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in this decision sprint of we're going to explore and design and, you know, fail fast and fail. And you're like, I I don't even know where to begin. So how does that change what it means to be a knowledge worker today? If, if people are listening and they're like, wow, just said so much there. I, I don't even know where to start on my own personal journey to get myself from where I am to where, you know, the market will need me to be. I'm optimistic about people learning new skills. And the starting point is really to look at contribution in a new way. If, for example, a company you know is considering something new or needs to solve for something big, you know, a great contribution is essentially surfacing the important considerations, surfacing the unknowns, contributing key questions. That's why I think you know getting the first base on innovating is really 
developing a great question list where a team that's grouped around this challenge can look at it and say, you know, we essentially have all the known unknowns here and does this look good? And, and does this question list sort of put us in a position where we can go do our detective work and investigate and try and get to the bottom of these questions, which is sort of getting to, to second base. And there's a lot of contribution possibilities within that. You know, that's where your expertise, your specific role in the company, you know, contributing to those questions and answers, raising the important considerations is, is, is really, really huge. So I would put emphasis on that. But then as you continue to, to take this through the flow, basically critical thinking skills become paramount for people. So that's where I think AI will also be a really important consideration because it'll speed things up, right? Because there's a lot of uh, ways in which AI can help you think about a blind spot or surface a blind spot you might not have thought of yourself. So you're going to want to be able to use AI as a companion to, to kind of feed your learning process. So I often say when people go, you know, oh, if there's one skill that, you know, I really should lean into, I use this term. I say, you have to become a master asker, like really good at asking really good questions. And it it's not so much about, wow, that was a really good question. If you ask a really great question, then you have to be a master listener, right? Like you, then you have to be able to listen, capture, understand, absorb, however that is. And I think that's potentially where, you know, large language models, machine learning and AI has a great opportunity to take that conversation, transcribe that conversation, use unstructured data, comb through it, say, here are the three suggestions or key points that came out of it to sort of be your partner in that exercise, because you may miss the subtleties, but if you're not good at asking questions, then you're not getting back the information and data you need to then make the right decisions. Fair? 100%. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, uh, some of what we're talking about has been around for a while. Like if you look at Toyota's five Y methods, right? It's just a way to recognize the fact that sometimes as humans, we take the lazy way, right? Like someone's like, how do you feel about this idea? Well, then we raise like a very general question. Like, I'm not sure if it will make money. Okay. Well, why do you feel that way? Or like, what keeps you up at night? Like <laughs> as a leader. <laughs> exactly. So if you, if you just keep going down that thread, you know, with the five whys, well, why, why are you worried about it? Well, okay. And why are you worried about that? Okay. Well, why is that so material? Then you actually get the real nugget that we need and it's, it's available. It's in the mind of, you know, the knowledge worker. It's just, you know, you need to think twice or maybe think about it three times. You need to go, go deep and really bring up that nugget. That's what the company needs from us. And it's my belief that AI is not going to provide that because, you know, the source of it is, is humans and you can't uh, replace, you know, the five or 10 or 15 years you spent in your industry, your company, or your, you know, functional area, you have the ability to see things that hasn't been inputted into the machine yet, right? You can make connect dots that are super important for your company to know. It's just that we have to go deep beyond the obvious. And when we can unleash that across, let's say a team, a cross-functional team of three or four parts of the company, and they're all contributing like their golden nuggets, right? Like going a little bit deeper with the with the questioning, then now what have we done? We've really sped up the whole learning process because we're like, aha, now we get it. It boils down to X, Y, and Z. Now let's do the detective work, see what we can learn about that. And that'll put us in a really strong position to say, hey, this is a great idea, or maybe it's not. Well, 
everything we've just talked about, in my mind, the Achilles heel of that being effective and successful lands at the feet of management. Like if your managers don't ask those questions or inspire the team to ask those questions or reward failure, you know, we all track wins and we talk about the wins, but you know, do they go around the table and say, okay, tell me something you failed at this week. And people feel safe to like, say I failed at doing this so that other people can learn. Like it really sits at the feet of, of leaders, I believe, and management. I, I'm guessing you, you probably agree with that statement. I think yes. And at the same time, I think uh, we can do what we need to despite the managerial style that's in the organization. And it's a hack. So the hack is essentially that, you know, because what will happen is once a, a challenge or mission is given to a team, you know, what happens? It's like, okay, see you in two weeks and come back with the recommendation or proposal. And then management is less involved in, you know, what's happening in those two weeks. And that's where I think there's a lot of control points for the team to kind of set up their own workflow. So for example, normally what what would they do? Some, some brainstorms, some deep dives, a little bit of random, and then hopefully they come out in two weeks and they feel really confident about like what they learned and what they want to recommend and put on the table. But if they take a, a more structured approach, not super structured, but structured approach to building and exploration and running it, then on the other end of it, they're going to come out with the same thing for the for the managers, which is a document, probably, you know, a PowerPoint, a narrative, something like that, right? But the engine behind that, you know, the their sponsors may not see how they got there. And that's the opportunity to use a different engine to get there, a more purposeful way of, of doing things, which is what I refer to as building and running explorations. So I guess my overall point is I think there is opportunity to be bottoms up and trying to kind of change a company. And my wish for teams is that when they have their, you know, reviews with sponsors, those not only go well, but the sponsors say, Hey, how come this meeting was so much more streamlined than all the other ones we're having? What's your secret sauce? And then they, and then they bring them into the loop on how their engine was, was, was a little bit different. But of course, Tiffany, to your point, we can put it on steroids if the, if the leaders are supportive of this kind of kind of process. So I think we can really change companies combining the bottom and a top-down approach. Yeah. And I think, look, I'm not uh, suggesting micromanagement, but I'm also not suggesting two weeks of hands-off either. (laughs) Like I think both are dangerous, right? Over micromanage, then do the project yourself. If you're just going to tell them what to do the entire time, but hands-off for two weeks, there might be a bunch of coaching moments in there. And, there was some research done by, first it was McKenzie talking about when, when managers are spending time with their people, that they tend to lean into the administrative side of management. Like, this is what you do. Here's your KPI. Here's the tool. Here's how to use it. Like, here's what you should be doing versus the coaching around some things, right? Like how to do better decision-making or how to fail forward or, you know, how to motivate a team. Like, so you've got a manager who's coaching a manager, right? Who's got a team. And so how do you motivate a team who might be burning out? Like, how do you get them, you know, back on track, whatever it might be. And then this stat is from Bain and very specifically around salespeople that it was like 54% of salespeople would not spend $1 for one hour of their manager's time. (laughs) (laughs) 
right? <laughs> so you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, it's not even valuable time, right? And so I, I feel like that, that middle manager is kind of the gladiator of the company, right? They're managing what's coming from the top and they have to tell that story and cascade it down and get people excited. And then they're managing the bottom up grumble or excitement, right? They're kind of squeezed between two constituents that are vying for their time. So I, I really feel if people are going to make huge transformations that that management layer has got to be solid. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, we, we need to clarify the role of, you know, all parts of the company. So for management, I think it's calibration over control. That's a phrase that I was known for, you know, in my time in the C-suite where, you know, in a meeting with me, you're really not going to get an answer. <laughs> you're going to get a lot of questions, but even if you came in with a hypothesis, I'm probably going to ask you if you considered X or Y or, or how you weighted one factor versus another. So it's more the calibration, like fine tuning your thinking to kind of get you on the right track. Even if I may have a strong instinct around what that track is, because it's, it's that interaction between the manager and the team is an opportunity to basically get everybody to understand. It's about shared understanding. If we're just in a model where we're telling people what to do, even though it's the right thing, uh, they haven't built understanding, then, then we're just going to have to do the same thing every time, right? Yep. They can't, they can't cascade that practice and they haven't, you know, learn how to think at the next level either. So that I, I think your point is, is brilliant. I mean, when it happens together, it's really powerful and companies can move so quickly and so boldly where, you know, teams are empowered to some degree with the ability to run exploration. Managers are focused on calibration and then we have, we have a nice fit. From, from your lips, from your lips, right? Well, thank you so much for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. Let's leave our listeners with ways to keep in touch with you, of course. Go out and grab your copy of Decision Sprint. But besides that, how can they continue to follow your work? Yeah, well, I do a newsletter on LinkedIn. It's one of the, the top newsletters called Rewire. So if you type in my name and Rewire and do that. And the other thing would be to visit the website for Decision Sprint. It's decisionsprint.com. And uh, we recently debuted on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. So there'll be some updates there around all, all the things I'm doing to promote Decision Sprint. Amazing. Well, thank you again for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. Thank you, everybody. 